Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. If you're listening to this episode on the day that it's released, 18th of August, then you can join me in celebrating the birthday of the late Geron Criswell King, better known to fans of Ed Wood movies as The Amazing Criswell. He was born on this day in 1907. The Amazing Criswell also predicted that the world would end on this day in 1999. As far as we can tell, it didn't. And this fact neatly summarises the accuracy of most of this American psychic's predictions. Criswell told many stories about himself. He declared that he'd not spoken until the age of four, when, as a thunderstorm raged outside the house, he suddenly declared, making his first prediction, that the rain would stop. He claimed to sleep in a coffin. In his 1968 book, Criswell Predicts from Now to the Year 2000, he predicted that Denver, Colorado would be struck by a ray from space, which would turn all metal into rubber and cause terrible accidents in theme parks. We don't think this happened either. Or the prediction about mass cannibalism. In today's episode of the podcast, Hilary Wilson sorts the truth from the fiction in Criswell's colourful life as she chats with author Edwin Lee Canfield. Edwin has spent the last 20 years, yes, 20 years, researching Criswell's life, conducting numerous interviews with people who knew him, worked with him, or were related to him. His book, Fact, Fictions and the Forbidden Predictions of the Amazing Criswell may be considered the definitive reference on Criswell. Hi, this is Hilary Wilson here for the Folklore Podcast today. Today I'm going to be talking to Edwin Lee Canfield about his book, Fact, Fiction and the Forbidden Predictions of the Amazing Criswell which is out now through a head press, assuming it's not yet again sold out. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hillary. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you spent over two decades doing research for this book. Um, how did you first come across the amazing Criswell? Um, like a lot of people, it was uh, from Plan Edwards' Plan 9 from Outer Space. Um, that, and then around that time, um, the Tim Burton film, Ed Wood, the biopic, uh, came out as well. And uh, Criswell was portrayed by Jeffrey Jones in that. And... Um, so I just had to know more about this guy. It was like some, you know, something bizarre and eccentric, and I didn't, you know, want to know more. And then a friend of mine loaned me his first book of prediction, Criswell Predicts to the Year 2000, which mm -hmm. at this time it was about the year 2000. So his uh, prediction for the world to end on August the 18th, 1999, had passed. So it was like he missed his big prediction there. And, um, so I just started doing uh, research, and uh, my original intention was to do a biopic similar to the Tim Burton's Ed Wood. Mm -hmm. um, worked on the script on that a little bit, and then I decided to go in the, uh, the direction of a documentary, uh, which never worked out as well. And so then I was like, well, I'll just do it as a book. Um, it's almost appropriate that it went through so many different manifestations, though, considering how varied Criswell's career had been as well. 
Right. Yeah. He dabbled in everything he could, uh, you know, in his search for fame. Yeah. But you did so many interviews, you know, with people for this book. You know, did you have trouble with you know, getting people for interviews? Some, um, not very much. Most people were very forthcoming with information and sharing contacts and things like that. Uh, a few people were a bit reluctant. Uh, Paul Marco, who was good friends with Criswell and was in Plan 9 from Outer Space and other Edwin movies, uh, he was a little uh, reluctant. And then I never did get to interview him. He, uh, I visited L.A. and he had passed away the day before I got there. So I didn't get to do that interview. Um, and then there were a couple other people that felt that uh, they were the ones that should tell Criswell's story since they personally knew him and I never had met him. So uh, they're a bit reluctant, but uh, it, it, I think I've covered everything pretty well, even without those. Well, I definitely think you did, considering how many um, different interviews you did achieve for it. You know, there was absolutely a wealth of information in here. And I was surprised how much you were able to find that wasn't associated with his years with Ed Wood. Because um, I figured those would be the most thoroughly covered uh, with the cult following that Ed Wood still has. Sure. Um, yeah, and I did want to go way beyond that. I mean, I touch on it quite heavily in there, and there's some new stuff in there about his relationship with Ed Wood and that whole gang of people. Um, but one thing that really helped was newspaper archives mm -hmm. and just the proliferation of news, you know, the availability of newspaper articles and being able to search thoroughly through them. Um, when I first started on the project, I was using newspaper archives and it was hit and miss. There were some holes in the timeline and things like that. But then when I had my final go at it, um, I got back on newspaper archive and it was just incredible how much more information I could find. And it really helped fill in the holes and tell the bigger, the bigger story of Criswell than just the Ed Wood relation. I was fascinated that within some of the newspaper articles, his name is misprinted. Um, was there a difficulty in finding some of them due to those misprints? Um, some of it just popped up. Some of them, I would look for the misprint, you know, search that way as well, <laughs> just to find that too. Yeah. So Criswell is, you know, best known apart from his association with Edward, you know, as being a television psychic. Um, he, you know, could you tell us a little about his early life and how that might have impacted how he portrayed himself later on? Well, he uh, was born in Princeton, Indiana on August the 18th, 1907, uh, grew up there, small town, had a pretty large extended family in a small town there, uh, the Criswell family and the King family. Um, then after high school, he uh, went to school in Cincinnati, uh, pre-med, and then decided to become a teacher and got his teaching certificate there and do the a mistake on the teaching certificate they left off his real last name of king and left it criswell and so just not to have to go through the hassle of having it redone he stuck with criswell on that and that kind of started him taking that name and then in the mid-30s he moved to new york city and started writing there was on uh radio doing financial forecasts things like that uh one of the legends claims that that's when he's you know he said i predict at one point, uh, some stock thing, and that kind of stuck. Um, so at the same time, there in New York City, he started writing plays. He did a adaption of Dorian Gray's uh, 
picture of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde, and uh, started to do off-Broadway off productions as well. Um, in just kind of a, you know, another way to become famous. Um, and that's where he met his future wife, Halo Meadows, who was also uh, a playwright and put putting on her own productions as well. Um, they then wrote three books on how to succeed in broad on Broadway and Tin Pan Alley, having though they've had no success at all. Uh, they also were married for, for a very short time, a couple of years, and they were giving marriage advice as well. Uh, really not knowing <laughs> much about marriage, you know, not have a lot of experience with it. But uh, and then they moved to Hollywood in 1940, started putting the play on there. Uh, Criswell started uh, doing a column uh, in the papers there. He also became acquainted with another astrologer named Norvell, who was in uh, one of their productions of the Dorian Gray play. Uh, and I think that was one of the things that kind of started pushing him towards this, you know, predictions and astrology, things like that. Uh, mysticism, spiritualism. He, uh, in the post-World War II, late 40s, he started a, his own spiritualist church called the Reli uh, Criswell Religious Foundation. Um, and then uh, he called it the Church of the Inner Voice as well. So that's when he started really dabbling in spiritualism, mysticism, things like that. Um, and then he started his newspaper columns. And then uh, he also started on radio. And then in the early 50s is when he got on local Los Angeles television with his Criswell Predicts program. So very early television where programming was, uh, they were looking for anything to put on pretty much. Yeah, I found it fascinating how deep his almost obsession with Dorian Gray seemed to be over the years uh, because it, he kept redoing it and putting it on and it didn't ever really seem to get very good reviews. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, but he stuck with it. And uh, he definitely had a, he said Oscar Wilde was his favorite writer and that, uh, you know, he definitely had a Dorian Gray obsession. Um, his um, art director for his television program, uh, she was a painter and she painted a portrait of him. It pretty much just looks like his silhouette, you know, front shot standing at the desk in Plan 9 from Outer Space from the promotional photo. But uh, kind of, she had it made it kind of a Dorian Grayish uh, look to it. And uh, one of the reasons they moved to Hollywood was he wanted to be in the film ad 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 adaptation, mm -hmm. uh, which was ended up being played by uh, Heard. I can't remember yeah. his name. Yes, um, it was a fantastic and, adaptation, but it's no Chris. Yes, it was. No, it's not Criswell. Uh, he didn't didn't make the cut for it, and, and it was a, that was one of his probably one of his biggest disappointments that he didn't get to do that. I always found it interesting um, that, you know, within just about every film adaptation of Dorian Gray I've seen, he never has the blonde hair that Oscar Wilde describes in the book. Chris <laughs> no. would have been the one who actually had that hair. <laughs> yes, he would, yeah. <laughs> but I found it interesting, um, you know, his obsession with Dorian Gray and Oscar Wilde considering the rumors of um, his own sexual orientation. 
and how that might have been almost a shorthand in a way of broadcasting that. I, yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Yeah, he, uh, you know, he, you could call him that he was closeted, bisexual, you know, but um, and like Liberace at the same time, you know, they kind of kept it kept it hidden away. Um, mm -hmm. But still, it was seen. It could be seen if you looked, I think. Yeah, and it just it was an interesting bit of undercurrent. Um, you know, it's not gone into too extensively, you know, within the biography, because obviously you want to you know, keep some things personal. But it just seemed like an interesting undercurrent, um, especially seeing how things ended up going with Halo, um, you know, as time went on. There were some uh, um, complications with the marriage. Yes, uh, she wasn't happy about it. And uh, speaking of the Dorian Gray portrait that was painted for him, she ended up stabbing it. All the <laughs> Dorian Gray style. Uh, I have photos of it. There's a big gash in it where she stabbed it with oh, a knife in a, in a fit of rage. And he, I don't believe they slept together, especially in their later years, because he slept in a coffin uh, at night. So, <laughs> and locked in his own room. Yeah, that's That was such an interesting detail of him with the coffin as well. Um, his family had a mortuary business, correct? His, uh, the Criswell side of the family is a long associated name with mortuaries, funeral services, and things like that. So it was that side of the family. He claimed that his father was a mortician, but he was actually an insurance salesman his entire life. Um, so a mortician in a way, just not the way that people... Right, yeah, just a different angle on it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, he had this coffin that he slept in, and... That's the coffin that you're able to see in some of the Ed Wood productions, right? Yes, in uh, Night of the Ghouls, which is originally called uh, Revenge of the Dead, he uh, <laughs> introduces the movie by rising up out of the coffin and does his spiel to intro the movie there. You know, with Ed Wood, um, this is how he is most known to people nowadays, um, because he is the one who introduces Plan 9 from outer space in an absolutely brilliant way. Um, extremely memorable and that is almost not exactly parodying but referencing you know his television production which lasted for a surprisingly long time um, considering the quality of the predictions that he often gave yeah he was probably on air local Los Angeles television for close to five years uh, through the, the from you know early mid 50s um, but Ed, I think one of the ways that they met Ed, he met with Ed Wood was Ed was directing some television at the time. He was doing anything he can could to get work, and he directed uh, some episodes of the Criswell Predicts television show there in Los Angeles. And so um, I've haven't been able to find any footage of that actual show, but from what I've seen and you know imagine is. The opening of Plan 9 is just like the Criswell Prediction Program would open. And Regis Philbin worked on that show for a time. Which he did. <laughs> well, he was uh, just like a production assistant or something like that at the time, just starting in to get into television. And uh, Criswell was dependent on cue cards. He, uh, for some reason, he couldn't remember his predictions. He always had cue cards. Even on when he would appear on Johnny Cards, he'd have little three-by-five cards he would read the predictions from. But 
anyway, when Regis Fielden worked at the station, they would hold the cue cards back just out of sight that he could barely see it and get him all flustered. It would be amazing to find some footage of that. It has to exist somewhere. It's probably somewhere, but uh, yeah. hopefully, you know, um, and one of the things that started to happen is I've had people contact me having read the book or heard about the book with more information. So, uh, you know, it, it's going to keep growing from there. And, you know, maybe the television show will show up at some point. That would be absolutely excellent. It seems like with every year, new footage is found of old silent films, you know, something that has been long thought lost. Long thought lost. Um, but one of the things that I thought was interesting was that he, um, with his newspaper column, he responded to so many people who would write in. You know, with each a publication, he would invite people to write him and, you know, was responding to those letters. That would have taken an awful lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. He just that was a lot. Um, he did get overwhelmed at one point after his columns started becoming very popular and he had to back off a little bit and take some time to catch up on the letters and wasn't taking any new ones to respond to. And uh, yeah, and just the number of his predictions as well. I estimate there's tens of thousands of predictions that he has done, including the newspaper columns, magazines, television, radio, you know, all the mediums that he worked in. So he was quite prolific in that way. Uh, there was an article that came out on him, I think in 2013, that was describing Criswell as the anti-psychic. You know, saying that every prediction he made had a 100% failure rate <laughs> and that it was such an unusual thing that he was getting things so incredibly wrong. And that became a little bit of you know common knowledge after um, that article came out. So it was fascinating to see some of the amazing hits that he got um, within your book. Yeah, he, uh, in a general way, he got some, right, you know, change, uh, like changing from cash money, coins and bills to electronic means of uh, financial things. Um, but, and the thing is, a lot of his predictions were general. And, in, and if you throw out tens of thousands of things, one or two might stick. Yeah, there's the um, Ronald Reagan becoming governor was one of the large ones that mm -hmm. shocked people um, because that was on the Johnny Carson show that he said that, I think. He he claimed that he saw said that on the Johnny Carson show. Any The episode, I believe I found the episode that he claims that was on and watched it, which there's very few of those that still exist either. And he doesn't mention it. So and a lot of his uh, the text on his books would we're kind of post-context. He would say, yes, I did predict that uh, JFK wouldn't run for president because of something mm -hmm. that would happen to him in November, you know, a year or two after it happened. So it's kind of easy to get a prediction right post-context. Oh, definitely. That would be far <laughs> easier than predicting something. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't exactly claim to be psychic, though. Um, you know, that's something that's been more attributed to him after the fact. Um, he, could you explain that? He claimed that as a child that he had these abilities, that he would be able to tell who was going to be the next uh, customer at the mm -hmm. uh, at the funeral parlor, at the mortuary. 
and things like that, predicted a huge tornado, things like that. But then he claims that he lost that ability when he started making money for it. So probably I would guess around the time he started his newspaper columns and was getting paid, you know, a dollar a column or something, he was making money and that's when he lost it, he claims. Uh, but Mae West uh, certainly believed in him. Yes, she did. Uh, she was uh, really big into the spiritualism, uh, astrology, mysticism, and things like that, past lives and things. So, um, And supposedly they met in New York City, claimed that he was her uh, press agent for a while in New, mm -hmm. New York, and then they met up again in Hollywood. Yeah, I was surprised by how close a relationship they had um, for such a long time. I thought that a lot of the interviews about how she uh, acted with him were very interesting. Yeah, she uh, yeah they, she sold him a, her Cadillac limo for a dollar. Uh, <laughs> said, "Hey, bring a dollar over here," and then his uh, her attorney signed it over to him, and he kept that limo um, up until he passed away in 1982. Um, so um, yeah, and she would send food over for him as well via her chauffeur and you know some of the uh she would show up there up there at the apartments where he lived as well at times so they were very close for a while yeah and she wrote that uh wonderful song about him too. <laughs> yes she did she wrote the song criswell predicts uh, which is easily discoverable on any streaming service now and yep, well yep. oh yeah it's great mm -hmm. yeah i i thought that was really interesting and then he had some uh wonderful predictions about her being president and going to space <laughs> yeah, yeah he, pre <laughs> he predicted that uh she would be the first uh female president of the united states uh mid 60s about 65 i think is when he said it would happen and then one of her first orders of business would be to go to the moon and him and uh uh george liberace would accompany her to the moon I want to live in that future. I think that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was a certain um, optimism that seems to go through a lot of his predictions, uh, where he's viewing this utopian world, um, you know, within his mind, where women have a lot of power and you know a lot of the social constraints that existed are no longer a thing, and that is not exactly what I would have expected for um, any sort of predictions because so many of the ones nowadays are doom and gloom. Right. Um, he did love women. He, uh, yeah. he adored women. He, uh, you know, kind of was uh, predicting women's liberation, things like that, that would happen and uh, let women run the world for a while. Cause men have, you know, not done such a great job. And so he's very supportive of that. Um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. And it started to fall into place for me when reading about his association with the 50s UFO movement. Um, because that contactee movement tended to have very um, you know, progressive views of the future, you know, very positive views about how things that were not so much happening then you know like women's liberation you know equality um environmentalism you know as well were the way of the future that the aliens were contacting us you know to tell us this so it seems like some of that rubbed off on criswell um particularly oh, or feo angelucci yeah definitely um i think that 
you know, he was interested in anything like that, any type of different new movement looking forward. Uh, he got involved with the UFO, early UFO movement. They had the first UFO flying saucer convention in uh, Hollywood at the Hollywood Hotel where he lived for a while. And then uh, they eventually moved it out to Giant Rock in Landers, California. Um, and Criswell predicted that's where World War III would begin. And then also that that's where the first contact with aliens would be as well. And there was a landing so. strip out there. Might still happen. It could still happen. It could, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I go out there every once in a while just to see, you know. <laughs> yeah, I got to check on it. Yeah, check it out. Criswell seems to be a big believer in Ed Wood's movies. Uh, not quite enough to invest, but enough to champion them. Yes, he. Uh, I think him and Ed Wood, they kind of worked each other. Uh, Ed, you know, used Criswell's relative fame. Griswold saw Ed Wood's films as another step towards fame as well. And they uh, they were close in that way, for sure. It was fantastic being able to look up online, you know, different clips from like Orgy of the Dead and um, some of the other productions. I am fascinated by, you know, what a strong afterlife these movies are having when they didn't do particularly well uh, within their own life. What do you think the appeal of them is now? You know, that's a great question. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that one. Um, of course, you know, the Ed Wood films are, you know, championed because of he was a diehard filmmaker. He just wanted to make movies and, uh, you know, kind of a, you know, ode to the guy that just does whatever he can to make his movie. That's one appeal of them. Um, I think it's just a nostalgia well as well. And um, just looking back at other, you know, how things were done. And um, sorry, I, that wasn't a very good answer. <laughs> I mean, I think that you're right, though. Like there, you know, there strikes me as being an almost blind optimism, you know, within a lot of Ed Wood's productions where he, firmly believes within this vision and he's going to do what it takes to actually make it happen. So for a lot of you know, younger filmmakers, that's kind of how it goes. Sure. You're yeah. It's going to have a big budget. You're just going to be doing what you're doing. And, you know, as big an appeal as they have within like the mystery science theater 3000 crowd, you know, there is a certain affection for how hard everybody is trying. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And it is inspiring. It is like, you know, if you have this vision, go for it, you know, don't let anybody, you know, tell you you can't do it. And if it doesn't turn out so great, you know, you learn a lot from it. Yeah. And you can just go right on to the next one. And just keep yeah. on going. Yep. Mm -hmm. It also is, you know, fun to get to see Bela Lugosi just, you know, for the sake of getting to see him or, you know, getting to see Vampira, who's always flawless. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's such a fun cast of characters. Yes, they are. They uh, they were definitely uh, kind of the left of center part of Hollywood for sure. And I think that you know them being you know a bit of the misfits, a bit of the outcast, is something that you know appeals a lot to people because that's easier to relate to for a certain crowd than you know the mainstream. For sure. Yep. Yeah, I was fascinated to learn about the uh, church of Edwood. That was not something that I'd come across before. 
Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, it was basically an internet church um, established back in the, probably the early 90s, I believe, mid-90s maybe, uh, where Ed Woods was just the deity of this religion. Criswell uh, was a saint. Uh, Vampire was a saint, I believe, as well. Um, there was an ordained minister, and uh, they would baptize people in the in name of the Church of Ed Wood. They had a couple of events of screenings of Plan 9 and some other Ed Wood films as well. Um, I don't know if it, I haven't looked at it in a long time, but I think if maybe you use a Wayback Machine on the Internet, you might be able to find their uh, manifests and all that on it. That would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. It, it just was such a fun idea. And I can definitely see how that would be something that would take off. Yeah, it was pretty popular there for a while, for sure. Did you get to meet anybody who was part of it? Uh, not in person. I corresponded with a few people that were involved with it um, and very helpful. Uh, and, you know, great information on Ed Wood. Just It, it certainly gives a different uh, angle on Ed Wood. Yeah. So what did you make, you know, after you're know, doing this much research, you know, what did you make of Halo Meadows? Yeah, she was quite interesting, probably just as eccentric as Criswell. I think they were a good pair in that way. They did work well together. Uh, they had big dreams together. Um, she came from a fairly well-off family um, back east, which helped support them along the way. Um, she, uh, and certainly her own mind and her own, uh, belief system. Yeah. I thought it was almost endearing, you know, how, when she did end up going back East, people were so protective of her that she became, you know, just a bit of a staple of the neighborhood, but, you know, they weren't wanting her to be, um, used in any way. Right. Yeah, they were protective of her. Uh, some of the people there where she was from, Littleston. Um, and it's a great tribute to her legacy that uh, things that they've done there and her remembrance and things like that. And, uh, you know, it was interesting to me. You, you, you spoke well saying that they were, you know, good for each other with, you know, the similar eccentricities. Um, but, you know, things definitely seems to fall apart for the two of them. Um, and I was, you know, almost curious about just what happened. Um, Halo did have some mental issues. She had been committed a couple of times. Criswell had her committed a couple of times. Um, but one of the, the reasons she left Hollywood and left Criswell there was that her father passed away. And so she went back to take care of their inheritance and the home, the family home she had grown up in and everything. And then um, uh, that's when she legally separated and divorced Criswell shortly after that. And um, she had probably, she felt that, uh, that maybe she had been wronged that he had, you know, used her money and things mm-hmm. like that to, you know, reach his, try to strive for his, stardom and then not really bring her along maybe what do you think that criswell's legacy is now um well 
he made things up. He just made up whatever he wanted. And um, that was not as common back then as it is now, as far as saying you're successful, you know, a Broadway hit, even though you've never been a Broadway hit or uh, even, uh, you know, just making predictions and things like that and just making it up as he went along. Um, it was kind of early, innocent, you know, like tabloid news, things like that, which, you know, now that's out of control as far as alternate facts and conspiracy theories and people just make things up as they go along constantly. Now there's no, uh, fact checking in most anything, but, um, so he was kind of a start of that, I think, but along with not just him, but others as well. Do you think that he believed any of what he was saying or thought that what he was doing was helping people? I think so. I think he uh, he definitely had that kind of uh, attitude that he wanted to help people and be generous and uh, help guide people along uh, for their good. You know, I don't think he was just out there just to rip people off. Uh, that was the impression that I was getting too, you know, especially with um, his uh, end of the world party, um, posthumous birthday party. Like it, I don't think that if he was just there to rip people off, people would have such a you know fond and protective view of him. No, that's true. Um, and from everything that I've you know, everybody I interviewed and things like that. He was just a kind and generous man, uh, outgoing. I think as far as his believing what he said, I think he kind of had the attitude as if you believe it, everyone else will believe it. No matter if you just made it up, you know, you put it out there as the truth and people take it that way. Yeah, those Johnny Carson appearances definitely lend itself to that, you know, with him being such a staunch uh promoter of what he's saying yeah he would read it like it's just matter of fact and then johnny would make a joke and you know make a joke of it or make a joke about him but it didn't deter him at all he just kept on going and go on to the next little three by five card and read the next predictions like it's absolutely the truth uh, i i have to admire that yeah <laughs> it's, it's a lot of conviction mm -hmm. yeah and that level of just professionalism as well you know, of just, I'm not going to be, you know, flustered in the least. Just, this is what it is. And, right. you know, make of it what you will. Like, mm -hmm. and he definitely was, you know, an intelligent man too. Yeah, he was well, well read. He would read newspapers, anything he could get his hands on, I believe, uh, just to gather information. And that's one of the things he said is this, his predictions were based on uh, past facts and precedents and things like that. So, uh, there was some basis in, you know, history in his predictions. He's such a fascinating figure, and I'm really excited that more people are going to be able to, you know, learn about him and learn about who he actually was beyond the figure that he has been presented in the Ed Wood movies. Um, what was the most surprising thing to you in researching him? Man, just, well, probably just that conviction of he was Criswell all the time. It wasn't just an act that he put on, you know, he didn't just put on the pancake makeup and get the spit curl going and, you know, showtime. He, uh, he lived it all the time. He was, you know, Criswell at all times. And uh, just to have that much uh, conviction to pull that off uh, was pretty fascinating to me. 
I loved the idea of him going down to the Brown Derby and just being able to walk in the door and there's Criswell. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Full yeah. pancake makeup straight from the studio. Do you think that were he, you know, doing his thing now, like were were he around today? Do you think that he would have a greater level of fame than he achieved back then? <clears throat> probably not. Um, I think he probably, you know, if somebody started doing this now, it would just be mixed in the wash of everything else. Um, you know, there's plenty of uh, people spouting off untruths now that uh, something like this would just probably, you know, get lost in the whole mix of it. I think he, you know, was a product of mass media at the time with the newspapers and radio and television, early television, which, you know, that opportunity does no longer exist to get into something that early and become a, a bit of it, you know, in that way. That's an interesting perspective because I like, I think that he has, you know, such a fantastic presence, but, you know, you're right that that wouldn't necessarily, you know, fly. Like there are just so many people now. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's just absolutely amazing. And so, you know, with the new information that you're getting, um, and you know, with the possibility of new things being uncovered in time, you know, do you think that you'll be able to present some of that material, you know, to the world? I, I will at some point. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what form that'll come in. Uh, could be a you know revised edition of the book, something like that. Uh, considering that, but uh, at some point it'll it'll get out there the the new information yeah that's excellent so how do people find you online you know how can people follow you um social media facebook uh forbidden predictions at forbidden predictions instagram is at forbidden predictions as well and twitter um at forbidden prediction one something like that's the short handle but if you just search forbidden predictions you'll find it there is there anything new that you're working on or are you resting after the long research? Um, I'm working on a few things. I have some uh, uh, things in the works. Um, one of them is about one of the people that uh, is in the book, John Gilmore. He was a writer. Uh, he wrote a book called Laid Bare about uh, with a lot of Hollywood exploitative type stories in there that he uh, claims to have been involved in. Um so that's one project I'm working on. Um, and kind of, uh, it kind of, he's kind of the same as Criswell as far as he made a lot of things up from what I've discovered. Uh, he said, claims he had sex with James Dean, you know, things like oh, that. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Um, so that's one project I'm working on. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. There's something so fun about, you know, digging into these characters and just what was going on. Yeah, it is fascinating. I've become really more fascinated with it, you know, over the Criswell research of other writers. There's a guy named Leo Guild that wrote a bunch of exploitive novels and things about celebrities. And of course, Kenneth Anger, who passed away recently with Hollywood Babylon and things. Uh, yeah, those those people really fascinate me. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to be following sure. and eagerly anticipating your next project. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Edwin Lee Canfield's meticulously researched book on Criswell is available from all good bookshops, providing the latest print run hasn't sold out as the first one did. And you can read our review of it on the Folklore Podcast website. 
You'll find a link on the episode page for this episode or in the book reviews tab on the top of the site. As an audiobook producer, I've had the pleasure of working on many varied genres and styles of book. And, as coincidence would have it, one of these features Criswell in a lead role. The Vampire's Tomb Mystery by Dwight Kemper is a rollicking murder mystery based in 1950s Hollywood and centred on many actual historical events, although it recasts Bela Lugosi into the fictional Armand Tesla. Armand Tesla was to be buried in his vampire costume, but obviously the aged star of stage and screen horror was not yet ready to ring down the final curtain. No, it would not be nearly so easy to bury such a restless corpse. In The Vampire's Tomb Mystery, the reader should be prepared for a case of a body that won't stay put, and the tale of a struggling young movie director with more ambition than talent, who turns up missing at the vampire's last bow. It will prove to be just the kind of case that only a psychic Hollywood detective like Charles Criswell King, aided by famous monster Forrest J. Ackerman, can solve. To link in with this episode, we've been able to make the audiobook of The Vampire's Tomb Mystery available for download via the podcast web store in the audiobook section. Here's an extract of the book to give you an idea. It was a strange sight, an antique limousine pulling up to a curb in the nickel, a quaint euphemism for LA's Skid Row, so named because it centred on Fifth Street. The nickel was notorious for its prostitutes, derelicts and dope addicts. It was Nightmare Alley in a dream factory town. Wood gestured at a shabby apartment house set starkly against the incongruous backdrop of blue skies and the Hollywood hills. Do you really think she'll come? I hope so, Criswell said. Mailer could use a night out. He turned to Wood. Aren't you going to open that? Wood looked down at the pot in his lap. You said I couldn't have any. I meant the envelope in your pocket. Oh, that! Wood smiled nervously. I'm afraid to. Armand sounded so crazy. There's no telling what's in it. Criswell shrugged. We'll never know until you open it. Wood reached for the envelope, hesitated, then shook his head. Maybe later. I'm not ready yet. If you wait too long, a mysterious stranger is liable to plug you and take it from you. Don't even joke about a thing like that. Wood looked around anxiously. You were joking, right? Of course I was. I hate to say this, but I think Armand might be turning paranoid in his old age. Could we stop talking about this? Wood pleaded. Okay, Criswell said, opening the door. Let's see if Mailer is in a party mood. Mailer Nermi was definitely not in a party mood. She was sitting at her kitchen table, her angular features sans makeup, naked except for a mousy grey bathrobe cinched tightly around her waspish waist. She felt decidedly unglamorous, having taken a pair of scissors to her red hair during a fit of despair. As she smoked a cigarette and sipped her whiskey from her vampire glass, she tried to figure out how she'd gone from being the toast of late-night television with featured articles in Life magazine and Newsweek, to down-and-out divorcee, barely eking out an existence on $13 a week. With her TV career in the toilet, what was left? 
Moving back in with her mother? Modelling for some sleazy camera club? Hustling for tips as a waitress? Of course, there was always the other alternative. Becoming a hooker. When you got right down to it, was there really any difference between show business and prostitution? Then there was the other alternative. Working for Edward D. Wood Jr. The thought of appearing in an Edward D. Wood Jr. production made Mela's skin crawl. Her gaze drifted to a framed picture of her vampire persona. A fully costumed Armand Tesla stood behind her, feasting hungrily upon her neck. Vampira was in ecstasy as the Count supped upon her throat, while her left boob got a reach-around squeeze from the naughty old lech. Vampira's hand rested over Tesla's bony, clutching claw, pressing it closer to her breast, inviting him to squeeze it tighter. She raised her glass in mocking toast as she remembered his hot breath on her neck. To Vampira and Dracula, she said. Here's hoping we both eventually rest in peace. As she drank to her toast, Mela saw distorted in the bottom of her glass the beckoning image of her kitchen stove. She wondered just how long it would take for the gas to asphyxiate her. Then she remembered she hadn't paid her utility bills and the gas had been turned off. I can't even afford to kill myself, she sighed, smirking wistfully. A knock at the door made Mela tense. Back in January, the actress had been the victim of an attempted rape. Provocative photos of Mela displaying bruises on her shoulder and upper thigh were circulated in the press. Sadly, the resulting publicity did nothing to resuscitate her career. The knocks wrapped out. Shave and a haircut. Snuffing out her cigarette, Mela eyed the door warily as she sprang to her feet and grabbed the baseball bat she kept by the door. Who is it? She challenged, Louisville Slugger at the ready. Criswell! Sang a familiar, friendly voice. If you are a Patreon supporter of the podcast at the appropriate levels, you can use your shop discount code for a reduction on the price of the Vampire's Tomb Mystery if you fancy a copy. Don't forget that you can join Patreon and support us for as little as a pound a month and get exclusive content and other rewards, as well as helping to secure the future of the podcast. And finally, just as this episode was being prepared, news came out of the death of William Friedkin, director of the iconic horror movie The Exorcist. In memoriam of Friedkin's work, we're bringing forward the release of a scheduled future episode of the podcast discussing the legacy of The Exorcist. Keep an eye out for that in the feed very soon. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and see you next time.